Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels. And do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Forgotten is a production of iHeartMedia and Unusual Productions. Before we start, this podcast contains accounts which some listeners will find disturbing. But without them, the story can't be fully understood. Please take care while listening. Last time on Forgotten. At the beginning, I thought it was a typical case of a serial killer. But it appears there was a highly organized group. The fact that a lawyer is murdered in such a public way, or shall we call it an execution, indicates that um, we're talking about something very big behind these murders. If you really want to know the underbelly of Juarez, you need to talk to El Abogado del Diablo, the devil's lawyer, Dante Almaraz. Dante, very, very smart, decided to hide this guy. Took him into prison under false charges, under a different name. He would always leave me with a little tidbit. And one of them was, this guy's alive, if you're interested. It was 2003, and Alfredo Cochado was in Juarez with an assignment from the Dallas Morning News. Find out who was killing the women and why. Alfredo had been asking everyone he could think of, but no one seemed able to give him answers. Finally, Esther Chavez Cano introduced him to Dante Almaraz, the so-called devil's lawyer. And Dante did not disappoint. He had a drug dealer on the run, hidden in the Juarez prison, who claimed first-hand knowledge of the killings. The fact that you had an eyewitness was incredibly important. He alleged, and I had no reason to not believe him, but alleged to be part of the Juarez cartel. And it finally worked out where I was able to visit this person under what I assume was an, uh, an alias. But we talked long and long, and I kept asking, you know, so why are these women being killed? Alfredo was apparently on the verge of getting the story. But just like Dante, the source didn't give up all his information at once. And the thing that really kind of caught my eye was said, you know, these are women who are coming from other parts of the country who if they go missing for a day or two or, or a week, no one's going to miss them immediately. And so, you know, little things started clicking. So here was Alfredo sitting in a jail cell in Juarez when, to his surprise, this alleged cartel member started giving him specifics. I had a night witness who alleged that he had been at these parties where these women would be brought into. And I mean, they would turn into orgies or rapes, and eventually 
the women would be killed because they knew too much. Alfredo was shocked, all the more so when the witness went on to explain that the women were taken off the streets to celebrate successful drug runs to the U.S. So this was the first time that I'm like talking to someone face to face, and he's giving me an account, an eyewitness account, and we're like, there's no way we can report that unless we really get as much evidence as possible. Alfredo had a shocking but potentially plausible explanation for what was happening to the women in Juarez. But could he trust the information? After all, he'd heard the account from a drug dealer who wanted to save his own skin, who he'd met through an underworld lawyer, himself openly on a quest for revenge. At times you feel like an American journalist, like you feel like everybody's sort of playing you, you know? But if it was true, it opened up all kinds of new questions. How could the men act with such brutality and impunity? Who else knew what Alfredo had just been told? And who might be complicit in covering it up? I'm Oz Veloshin. And I'm Monica Ortiz Uribe. This is Forgotten. The Women of Juarez. Voy a crear un canto para poder existir. Para mover la tierra a los hombres y sobrevivir. So, just months earlier, Monica, Alfredo's in D.C. interviewing presidents and ambassadors. And now he's in a jail cell in Juarez, interviewing a drug dealer with Dante by his side. How does he get here? Something to remember here is that Alfredo ended up in this jail cell out of naivety, more so than astute planning. He's convinced that all of Mexico's problems will disappear now that it has free and fair elections. And he's on his way to Mexico City to cover this progress. Juarez was only supposed to be a pit stop. He's now waded into the netherworld. And Dante was his link. And how do you make sense of this netherworld where Dante evidently operates and where he's leading Alfredo? Well, (laughs) that's a big question. In Mexico, there are these two parallel universes that coexist. The one that's visible on the surface and the one that's not. And it's that invisible universe that operates completely outside the rule of law. It's the one everyone knows exists, but nobody talks about. To talk about it openly is to ask for trouble because this realm is ruled by organized crime. And this is where Alfredo's witness operates. But Alfredo's mission is to find out who is killing the women of Juarez. And to answer that question, you really have no choice but to tread into the Juarez underworld. As a reporter who's been relentlessly asking, who's doing this? Who's behind the murders? Who's responsible? What do you think Alfredo was thinking when he was hearing this testimony? Well, I'm certain that Alfredo was feeling a mix of giddiness and fear because you're starting to tread past an invisible line where you go from the traditional reliable sources into this grayer world. And I mean, as you might imagine, he's blown away by this account But he knows that, as a good journalist, he just can't take this account and put it in the newspaper. Everyone you interview will have an agenda, probably most especially a drug trafficker. So you can't just take a witness account at face value. You have to get confirmation from multiple sources. Alfredo had a potentially huge break about the connection between the women's murders and organized crime in Juarez. But he couldn't go to print without verifying the information was true. And in that sense, 
Alfredo's journey was just beginning. And meanwhile, he wasn't the only person who was still asking questions about who was responsible for the murders of women in Juarez. By this point, Paula Flores had been trying to establish who was responsible for her daughter's murder for five years. And they'd been long years. Paula was prepared to tell Sagrario's story again and again to keep her memory alive and in the hope it might bring her closer to the answers she craved. She got increasingly involved in activism with the mothers of other victims. But back when Sagrario first went missing, Paula told us her son Chewy took it very hard. Right before she disappeared, she had bought a cassette of Los Temerarios, and we had a van, an Aerostar that they bought between themselves. In those days, she would insist that Chui play the cassette in the van because she didn't know how to work it. And she would tell Chui, play the cassette, play the Temerarios cassette. And Chui would say, quit being a pest, I'll put it on in a second. And he would stall and not do it. After she disappeared, my son would lock himself in that van with the cassette. And he would play that music and just cry because it reminded him of her. Before moving to Juarez, Paula had sent letters to her husband, Jesus, asking if the city was safe for their six daughters. She'd heard about the murders there and was concerned about cholos, or gang members in the neighborhood. Jesus replied that there weren't any, just a boy who hung around with his sister. And after the family moved to Juarez, they got to know this boy. He was called Manuelio. He was a boy about 16 years old. I actually felt sorry for him because he had no family. He had nothing here. He was abandoned by his mother when he was very young. Manuelio became friends with Paula's son, Chuy, and started to spend time with the family, even sharing meals with them. He knew my son, and he'd known us since we moved here. We always noticed that he liked Sagrario. But Manuelio was far from being a desirable suitor. He was what's known as a coyote. When we arrived here in 95, he was working smuggling people into the United States. Not only did he cross people, but he also crossed drugs and all. Paola and her family lived in Lomas de Poleo, which at the time was only separated from the U.S. by a barbed wire fence. So smuggling was an appealing line of business in the area. For a teenager like Manuelio, it seemed to offer better prospects than working in a factory for less than $7 a day. He often came to my house asking for water because he was crossing the U.S. border and never refused to give him water. While Paola was concerned about Manuelio's connections to the Juarez underworld, she also understood his circumstances. He was as poor as the Flores family and even more vulnerable because he didn't have any family of his own. So Paola helped him out where she could. A few weeks after Sagrario's body was discovered, Manuelio paid her a visit. Paola was at home, grieving, tending to an altar commemorating her daughter. Flowers, letters, a Winnie the Pooh stuffed toy from the maquila. And something about this visit seemed off. He asked me for water. I told him, go ahead, fill the gallon. That time he saw me crying and he said, you cry too much, stop crying for her. These were words that did not seem appropriate to the situation. And they angered Paula, tugging at a suspicion she already felt. I turned around and said, you know what? I'll always curse my daughter's killers because she didn't deserve to die that way. And he told me nervously, don't say that. And I said, yes, that's what I ask all the time. I curse them. After a few tense moments, Manuelio left with his gallon of water and Paula returned to the altar. By this point, she and her family had searched frantically through the night, posting flyers and trying to track down any leads. She'd yelled Sagrario's name desperately into the night, and she'd even broken into a government meeting and begged the Attorney General on her knees for help. And she'd prayed and prayed. I would ask God to let my daughter come to me and tell me who had harmed her, who had taken her. 
At night in bed, I would turn my back to my husband and face the corner, looking for my daughter. Speaking to God, I told him, I'm not good enough to see my daughter, but allow her to come to me, even if it's in my dreams. Let her tell me in my dreams. I don't know if I was asleep or awake, but I heard a voice. A voice talking to me softly, like she called me Paula. She said, Paula. When she spoke, without moving, not knowing if I was asleep, I asked her, Is that you, Sagrario? In a very clear voice, she told me, Yes. I started dreaming of her in Durango. There was a place where water trickles out of stones, and we collected water to drink from there. And I saw her kneeling down, washing some clothes there. I went down to her, and the first thing I did was caress her hair and move it off her face. Her hair was long, black, and wavy. The first thing I told her was, Who took you, my daughter? Who hurt you? Who took you? Tell me who took you. She told me, Mama, it was Manuelillo. In the depths of her grief, after weeks of searching for Sagrario with no answers and no help from the authorities, it seemed to Paula like her prayers had been answered. She had a name, and even though it came from a dream, it seemed plausible. Manuelillo's life as a coyote brought him into contact with dangerous criminals. But he was someone who Paula knew, who Sagrario had known. They'd invited him into their home and thought of him as a friend. So the next time he showed up in search of water, Paula challenged him. At first, Manuelillo denied all knowledge. But Paula had a relentless conviction in her dream. And ultimately, Manuelillo confessed that he did know something about her daughter's fate. He told me, you know what? The narcos from El Valle did it. I asked him, what could the narcos from El Valle have to do with my daughter? And he told me, when they like a girl, they find her, no matter the cost. Paula's dreams seemed to have revealed something to her that she already felt. Manuelillo knew something about Sagrario's murder. But who were these other narcos, drug traffickers from El Valle? How were they involved? When we come back, Manuelillo appears poised to answer those questions. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive Budget Beach Finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Generations Riviera Maya Resort and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Before the break, Manuelio told Paula that Narcos were responsible for Sagrario's murder. Paula now felt she had something to go on. The authorities had been unhelpful, even after her protest before the Attorney General, but now she had new information to share with them. And so she went to the special prosecutor's office in Juarez to ask them for help. At first, Paula was treated with the usual dismissive attitude, especially when she told them that the lead began with a dream. But Paolo persisted, and ultimately Manuelio was arrested, and he gave the authorities some more details about his part in Sagrario's fate. In this statement, he names two other people. He states that he was paid 500 U.S. dollars for taking them to my daughter's workplace. They were two coyotes. They brought him people to cross illegally, but he also crossed drugs for them. This all seemed to be taking Paula closer and closer to the answer she craved. But then Manuelio retracted his statement. And in fact, he entered new testimony before he was sentenced, saying that he had acted completely alone. Paula, Jesus, and two of their children went to the sentencing hearing to challenge him. I faced him. I told him, tell the truth once and for all. You didn't act alone. Chewie approached him and said, how many times did you stab her? And then he got scared and he said, no. Then he went quiet and said, like, three? No, I believe my daughter had six. Manuelio didn't even know how many times Sagrario had been stabbed. And Paula didn't believe a word he was saying. In front of everyone, she pressed him. I told him, I used to feed you along with my daughters. You'd eat with my children, I said. Why don't you tell us the truth at once? Who are you covering up for? He said that the Mulones did it. That's how he called the state police. He said, it's just that they told me that I should just accuse myself for all of this to be over. Why would Manuelio paint himself as a murderer when in fact he was likely a scout? Why would he be prepared to take the fall for these other smugglers? And why would the authorities pressure him to do so? The process of scapegoating was familiar. Sharif, the so-called Rebeldes gang, the bus drivers, Manuelio. Except Manuelio likely wasn't innocent in Sagrario's disappearance. He had initially confessed that he was an accessory to a larger crime. Since 2005, he has served a 29-year sentence. I've always told the authorities, if he's getting other people involved, he didn't just make them up. They said that the emblematic case of Sagrario has been solved, that the murderer was in jail already and all. I've always said the opposite, that he's not the only one, and that the authors of the crime are still free. Who are the authors of the crime, and how do they remain free? These are questions Paula is asking 20 years after her daughter's murder. But the suspicions and hints we'd heard that there was a network of scouts in Juarez, identifying women to be murdered by other men, were starting to seem more and more plausible. To me, hearing about Paula's dream, where she sees Sagrario again in their hometown, 
in Durango is one of the moments in our reporting that sticks with me the most. But Monica, you told me that hearing these kinds of dreams from family members is something you've experienced before. Yes, so it was the aunt of a young woman who went missing in 2010. And she also describes a dream very similar to Paula's dream in which she's invoking her missing niece and imploring her to please tell her, where are you? Who did this to you? Help me solve this crime. And I think those dreams are born out of desperation, just the sheer desperation and impotence that these families feel, not being able to rely on the authorities whose job it is to find those responsible. And yet, even if the authorities don't want to acknowledge it, once you hear this story about Manuelio alongside Alfredo's story, the connections seem hard to dispute. I mean, there's these chilling parallels between what Manuelillo tells Paula and what this uh, drug dealer witness tells Alfredo. Manuelillo was just an adolescent, a young man. And really, I mean, the way these drug traffickers recruit young men like him is they say, hey, look, this is all you have to do. They make it seem very simple. Here's what you have to do. And here's what we're going to pay you. And... For a lot of these immigrants in Juarez who don't necessarily have the family ties that they used to back in their hometowns in the interior of Mexico, joining a gang or or the drug cartel offers that connection of family that they may have lost. But the trade-off is he has to then answer to the underworld. There's no justice system in drug trafficking. If you run afoul of the cartel, that's typically a death sentence. Manuelillo most certainly knew this. So when he got orders, he knew that his choice was either to follow those orders or kiss his life goodbye. And of all people, it feels like Paula Flores understood this. That was something very remarkable to me, is that There's a part of her that pities him, that feels sympathy for him being in this impossible situation. As of today, Manuelio is in jail and his official confession states that he acted alone. That as a 16-year-old, he abducted and killed Sagrario, the daughter of the family who gave him water as he smuggled people through the desert. The authorities never followed up on his initial confession to Paula about the narcos from El Valle. Rather than acknowledging a potential network, they preferred to blame individuals. And despite mounting evidence pointing to organization behind the murders, there was an enduring suspicion on both sides of the border that a serial killer was at work in Juarez. That's what brought Candice Skrapek there in the 1990s. She's a forensic criminologist at Fresno State University. I was trained by FBI profilers in Quantico, Virginia. As a psychologist, my background is consistent with the kinds of things that the agents are learning about mental disorders, various forms of psychopathology, and how they may leave clues at crime scenes. But basically, it was drilling down case after case, trying to identify patterns of behavior that could be reflective of the kind of person that would perpetrate that kind of crime. Candace went to Juarez with her friend and colleague, Robert Ressler. He was a retired FBI agent who had helped create the Bureau's Behavioral Science Unit. He was one of the world's top experts on serial killers. In fact, he's credited with coining the term. Candace and Ressler were in Juarez at the invitation of an American public safety advisor to the Juarez authorities. So Candace got access to the case files. I saw all of the homicide photographs. I went through all the autopsy reports and things. And without doubt in my mind, there was one serial murderer operating who was getting the little girls um, and the young adolescent girls in terms of patterns of behavior. As Candice reviewed the case files, it became clear to her that there was a serial killer operating in Juarez, someone preying on very young victims. But the murders of Sagrario and Lily Alejandra didn't match that pattern, and nor did many others. What stunned Candice was that there was clearly something else bigger going on in the city as well. 
something on a scale she'd never seen before. Were most of these hundreds of murders, were they attributed to serial killers? Well, not in the traditional sense. There was one crime scene in particular that Candace examined, which confirmed to her that what was happening in Juarez was unlike anything else she'd ever encountered. And as a warning, her description is very upsetting. Well, one of the bodies was left on the outskirts of Juarez, and they had clearly driven her, they, because of the numbers of footprints, they had abducted her, driven her, got out of the truck, and made her walk without her shoes into the semi-desert area where presumably they raped her repeatedly um, and strangled her uh, and just left her exposed, nude, legs spread open, uh, just just showing their, their, their disgust of her. Um, so the first person that would walk upon the crime scene, as it were, would be met with her legs open. Candace was deeply shocked despite her years of experience investigating serial killing and sexual crime. In fact, even Robert Ressler was taken aback. I asked Agent Ressler about that because he has more experience in homicide in his little finger than I have in my whole body. And I said, Bob, have you ever seen anything like this in your career, in your experience? And he said, no, I haven't. The men that I study Mostly, they operate alone. I mean, think about it. If I were intent upon killing a number of people as long as I could, I don't think I'd want anybody watching me do it. Certainly, they could turn me in. How, how would I know I could trust them with this? So I started thinking, how could all of these men trust each other? What if one of them goes to the bar and starts shooting his mouth off about their latest victim? And then I realized... He's not going to be doing that. Because there is a pact, if it's not spoken, it's certainly unspoken, that if, if you start turning any of us in, pointing any fingers at any of us, um, we think you love your family, and we'll kill them first. What Candace was describing went beyond killing for pleasure. It was killing as a bonding ritual a new definition of serial killing. According to her analysis, one of the key reasons why so many women were murdered in Juarez was to create a code of loyalty and silence. The murders were not a side effect of cartel violence. They were a crucial part of how it worked. But if this was apparent from the crime scenes and even from the testimony of lower-level cartel affiliates, why did the authorities not take more decisive action? Well, Candace and Robert Ressler traveled to Juarez as private individuals. But not long after their trip, the FBI launched an official operation in Juarez to learn more about how the cartel operated. It was led by Frank Evans, who was assistant special agent in charge of the FBI's El Paso office from 1998, the year Sagrari went missing, to 2000. My name's Frank Evans, and while I was in the FBI, I had the opportunity to work violent crimes, kidnappings, extortions, organized crime. Um, of course, drug investigations are what ultimately brought me to the FBI office in El Paso. So what interested the El Paso FBI in the Juarez cartel? Well, at that time, obviously, the Juarez cartel was a major mover of contraband into the United States. Any kind of drug that could be moved, marijuana, cocaine, the, the cartel controlled, they call it the Juarez Corridor. Juarez's position across the border from El Paso made it one of the world's most sought-after drug trafficking routes. And the cartel acted with extraordinary violence to protect their turf. And this violence didn't respect nationality. So in 1999, the FBI received a tip that a number of American men had been killed by the cartel in Mexico. If they could prove these murders of American citizens, they could secure an indictment for the leader of the Juarez cartel, Vicente Cario Fuentes. 
the FBI wanted to have him arrested and extradited for trial in the US. And they were given unprecedented jurisdiction by the Mexican government to cross the border to recover and analyze the bodies. The mission was called Operation Plaza Sweep. I mean, we crossed in with food, water, portable toilets, heavy machinery, forensic equipment. We actually had an entire forensic morgue in the FBI space here in El Paso. And the scale of the investigation was extremely large. You know, the cartel didn't have taco stands waiting for us and, you know, cold drink stands. They were truly shocked that you now have 120 FBI agents with equipment coming into Mexico. How did you know there was shock on their behalf? You know, birdies told us. <laughs> Listening? You know, potentially. <laughs> One of Frank's goals when he arrived in Juarez was to evaluate how evidence was collected and stored. And he discovered some fundamental problems. Many of the crime scenes were contaminated. In some cases, the bodies were discovered and, you know, okay, guys, when you discover one, don't touch it. Let your forensics people come in. Well, then the forensics people come in, they turn the body over, and there's fresh cigarette butts under the body. Well, when you check into it and you find out the cigarette butts belong to the detective that was there first. Well, wait a minute. You didn't touch the body. No, no, I didn't touch the body. Well, how did your cigarette butts get under the body? Oh, you know, the media wanted to take some pictures, so I rolled the body over, and it must have happened then. How does this occur? Well, it doesn't occur by accident. It occurs by design. If you have a contaminated crime scene, you can't tie it successfully to a subject or subjects. To Frank, it appeared the crime scenes were being purposefully disturbed by the very people whose job it was to preserve them. When you don't follow your established protocols, you are ensuring that any evidence that is recovered is going to be almost impossible to introduce at trial. You undermine everything. Frank was discovering that it wasn't the exception for crime scenes to be tampered with in Juarez. It was the norm, and it prevented crimes from ever being solved. The killings Frank was initially concerned with were murders of men committed by the cartel. But then he had an idea. What if the FBI also offered to help the local police get to the bottom of the women's murders? When we come back, we learn what came of that offer. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. 
to have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Before the break, Frank Evans was describing his work to exhume bodies as part of Operation Plaza Sweep, an FBI effort to secure an indictment against the Juarez cartel leader for the murder of American citizens. In that investigation, his Mexican counterparts were from the federal police. But while in Juarez, Frank saw an opportunity to offer the FBI's resources to the local and state police to help solve the murders of women. Part of it was selfish. We were trying to see, can we work with anybody locally? You know, is it possible that there's a local group that might be able to be vetted into Plaza Sweep? You know, we have resources that we will make available to you as you look at these homicides. We will give you the best minds the FBI has in criminal profiling to look at your case and tell you what they think. Specifically, Frank offered access to the FBI's analysts at Quantico, the men and women who'd been trained in Robert Ressler's approach to forensic psychology. The officials in Juarez accepted, and as they'd done with Candace, they handed over case files. We were given 76 files, each file representing one of the deceased. The profilers took those files. They went through them just like they would a file that was, would be provided by a United States law enforcement entity. And they identified 34 cases that had items of interest that they wanted to explore further. 34 of the 76 files shared by the police had common characteristics, indicating to the FBI profilers that the same people may have been involved in the murders. This felt like a potentially huge break. Then something happened that told Frank everything he needed to know about his partners in Mexico. It was at that point that the authorities, the state attorney general's office of Chihuahua, was like, oh, we've gotten the FBI reports and they agree with us 100% and case closed. In fact, they claimed that the FBI's reports confirmed the guilt of Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif, the Egyptian chemist who stood accused of both being a serial killer and then paying a gang to commit murders on his behalf in order to prove his innocence. They distorted what the report said in order to validate the position that they had been espousing. But why? Why the failure after failure to resolve these crimes once and for all? We had evidence that, unfortunately, I am not at liberty to go into, that the handling of the femicide cases was not in accordance with accepted police procedure. And the assumption is it is either then gross incompetence on the part of the police officials or it's deliberate. You know, you can only be incompetent so many times. You can't be incompetent 300-plus times. From our perspective, it showed that there wasn't a real commitment to resolve the femicides. Do you ever know, um, could, could you tell why, why there was a lack? No, we speculated. What did you speculate? Well, our speculation was that when you don't want a crime to be solved, it's because the resolution of it is going to be extremely either embarrassing to somebody in power or it's going to come back to you. You being? The law enforcement authorities. The law enforcement authorities. Was it possible they weren't just failing to solve the murders of women, but actively involved in them? Could this explain why decades of murders had gone unsolved? Well, Alfredo's reporting was also beginning to suggest this might be the case. So, Alfredo ultimately did feel that he could trust what he'd heard from that drug dealer in the Juarez prison, Monica. And he went to print with a huge story. How did he get there? Well, he paired up with another colleague, and together they backed up the witness's account with intelligence from federal law enforcement from the U.S. and Mexico. One of the law enforcement accounts that Alfredo prints in his story 
is an unnamed U.S. official who cites raw intelligence. And he says, quote, All you have to do is put together a simple investigative equation of why and how, and you get to the who. Why? Because they can. Because there's a sense of excitement, a sense of an erotic feeling. Sicarios, that is hitmen, fit the profile. There is no limit anymore to what they can do. They enjoy the feeling of ecstasy, the orgies. The women are like trophies for them. They are thrill kills. These guys like the feeling of control, but they need help. And that's where the local and state police come in. I hate that quote, but I don't doubt it's true. Alfredo was able to verify that the very police who were supposed to be protecting the public and investigating the crimes were actually the ones committing the crimes. When you read that first article on the front page of the Dallas Morning News, I mean, it was huge. Alfredo's story went to print in February 2004. Later on, he reprinted the drug dealer's play-by-play account in his book, Midnight in Mexico. To have it verbatim, we asked him to read it aloud. The cops would first identify potential victims, study their routine. It wasn't hard to lure the women. Police would stop them on the street as they got off work and tell them that a family member was missing or something had happened to their child. And wouldn't they please get in the backseat of the police car? The cops would then transport them to the parties where they would be gang raped. By the end, the women always knew too much and they were killed. This would explain the lackluster search for Sigurario. It would explain why, when witnesses reported seeing Lilia Alejandra struggling, the police logbook for the night says, nothing to report. This was a conspiracy. And it wouldn't have been uncovered without the work of journalists like Alfredo. This is how journalism is supposed to work. This is why we need a strong and robust press. It took the combination of these Mexican reporters who first wrote about these crimes beginning in 1993, then Diana calling attention to the systematic nature of the murders, and Alfredo confirming the corruption behind it. But this isn't where the story ends. I mean, the corrupt cops are only part of the equation. Alfredo had finally corroborated what Dante's source had told him, and it exposed the involvement of certain police officers. But if law enforcement agents were acting on behalf of the cartel, how far did the influence of organized crime reach, and who else was complicit in the abduction and murder of women? On his journey to answer those questions, Alfredo paid a visit to the corridors of power in Mexico City, And he came into contact with a force that seemed far more menacing than corrupt cops. Yeah, I'm in in the heart of Ciudad Juarez, in downtown Juarez, near the Mercado, near the cathedral, near the park. And I'm walking away, and there's a number that comes in. And it's not a number, it's just unknown. It says unknown on your phone. It says unknown on the phone. And uh, the person says, uh, aquí voy detrás de ti, por la 16. What's that in English? I'm right behind you on 16th of September Avenue. I was being watched. Alfredo was scared, and he turned to the only person he could think of, Dante. It was the first time I saw Dante, and I thought, he looked worried. And then he finally says, ya te chingaste. Which means? You're fucked. Uh, I said, why? He says, they're onto you. La línea is onto you. In the next episode, Alfredo makes a break for safety and he tries to understand what La Línea is and what their role might be in the murders. I'm Oz Velocian. And I'm Monica Ortiz-Uribe. See you next time.
Forgotten, The Women of Juarez is co-hosted by me, Monica Ortiz Uribe. And me, Oswald Oshin. Forgotten is executive produced by me and Mangesh Hatikida. Our producers are Julian Weller and Katrina Norvell. Sound editing by Julian Weller, Jacopo Penzo, and Aaron Kaufman. Lucas Riley is our story editor. Caitlin Thompson is our consulting producer. Recording assistance this episode from Alice Daniel and Miguel Perez. Production support from Emily Marinoff and Aaron Kaufman. Our theme tune is Derecho de Nacimiento, as performed by Natalia Laforcade. Music by Leonardo Heblum and Jacobo Lieberman. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Carla Tassara is the voice actor for Paula Flores. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.